This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good afternoon, and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. It's September, and even if you're not headed back to school, it's time to say goodbye to summer vacation mode and get back to your routine. Well, according to the CDC, about a third of U.S. adults report that their routine usually includes less than the recommended amount of sleep, which means six or a few hours per day. Not getting enough sleep is linked with many chronic conditions. Heart disease, obesity, depression can lead to motor vehicle accidents, mistakes at work, resulting in injury, and even disability. The bottom line, getting enough sleep is not a luxury. It's necessary for good health. Today, we'll hear why adequate sleep is important, tips for good sleep hygiene, and when you should seek the help of a sleep medicine specialist if you have symptoms of a sleep disorder. Our guest is Dr. Richard Schwab, professor of medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, chief of the Division of Sleep Medicine. He's done extensive research in identifying the key structures in the upper airway that play a role in sleep apnea. And he's recognized for multiple years as a top doc in Philadelphia, a best doctor in America, and America's top doctors. Welcome, Rich. Thanks, Marianne. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Rich, we are truly a sleep-deprived society. What is adequate, good quality sleep, and why is it important? We are definitely a sleep-deprived society. I mean, I always make fun of the fact that... Starbucks is probably the biggest pharmaceutical chain in the country because we're all drinking coffee all the time because we're all sleep deprived. We don't, you know, it's very difficult to determine actually how much sleep people need. But in general, you need from seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep per night. If you were to go on vacation and didn't exercise and didn't drink any alcohol and just the first week just sort of let yourself alone and the second week just got up when you wanted to, go to bed when you wanted to, you could actually probably figure out how much sleep you actually need. Very difficult to do that. So for most of us, we don't really know how much you need, but in general, seven and a half to eight and a half hours is is what most people need. And I'm sure to a degree it varies with age. Infants 
versus tweens and teens or then as we get older, 65 and above. Um, are there guidelines that are presented by national societies? Like I think I've been reading the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and Sleep Research or the National Sleep Foundation, or who does, who presents those types of guidelines? So I don't think we really know. I mean, there's mm -hmm. multiple guidelines. The one thing I would say is that you know, when you're in, a child needs a lot of sleep, adolescents need a lot of sleep. They need 10, often 10 hours of sleep, and they're getting up early to go to school, high school in particular. Uh, you do need less sleep as you get older, and you lose delta sleep. Delta sleep is sort of a deeper stage of sleep, and that's one of the really good sleep stages, good sleep stages in terms of delta and REM sleep. The more delta and REM sleep you get, the better you'll feel the next day. The less delta and REM sleep you'll get, the worse you'll feel the next day. One of the things that comes up a lot is if you're a student or you're working hard, you stay up late or you get up early to do work. That's not a good idea because you lose your last REM episode. REM is rapid eye movement sleep, dreaming sleep. And so we usually have five episodes of REM sleep throughout the night. They last anywhere from 15 to 25 minutes. But if you miss your last REM episode, that's a problem. You're not going to be as refreshed as you ought to be. So staying up late to study for an exam or getting up early to do work is never a good idea. And I would guess that if during the week you study for a few exams and then you sleep late on Saturday, that does not make up for all those REMs that you cut out during the week. Is that probably true? A little bit true. You do. You we develop a sleep debt, and people actually do catch up on the weekends. So that's actually a good thing. It's oh, okay good. to sleep in a little bit on the weekends. You know, you don't want to sleep in three or four more hours than necessary, or take really long naps on the weekends. But short naps are fine. And then getting more sleep on the weekends is is almost necessary in our society because we're all so sleep deprived. So yeah. we you can't pick up a sleep debt. And it's not perfect, but it will help. Well, you know, it's interesting too, and I, I was thinking about this, when a person comes, a new patient, and we want to try to understand as a GI doc, their belly pain, obviously you're going to ask um, a very thorough history about somebody's sleep habits. Are you fatigued or sleepy during the day? Do you work shift work? All those elements that go into your assessment and your um, recommendations. But I would gather, I would guess that the average primary care doc or routinely, doctors don't ask people's if they have people if they have sleep uh, uh, deprived uh, histories or, or symptoms. Would you guess that's the case? Yeah, that is totally the case. Uh, and oftentimes, it's not so easy for the person who you're interviewing to even answer the questions, right? Sometimes you can in terms of how much time you sleep, what time you go to bed. But things like snoring or sleep fragmentation or kicking a bed partner, you, you need the bed partner there. So oftentimes you don't, even if you were to ask the questions, you may not get the right answer, mm -hmm. but ideally general internists should ask mm -hmm. everyone if they're sleepy during the daytime and if they snore because those are risk factors for sleep apnea. Uh, but if you want to go into more detail, absolutely you should ask the patient, what time do you go to bed? What time do you get up? How long does it take you to fall asleep? Do you snore? Do you have sleep fragmentation? Do you feel refreshed when you wake up in the morning? How sleepy are you during the day? Do you fall asleep driving? Do you Ooh. fall asleep at work? Do you fall asleep watching movies? So those are some of the questions you can ask. But the minimum thing, the min minimum is you want to ask about snoring and sleepiness. Mm -hmm. And if you have, I uh, proudly admit that I could win any snoring contest, but if you're your partner snores as well, 
you know, you don't hear each other, I guess. But I, I like that you emphasize daytime symptoms because that might be easier for somebody to keep track of. So if somebody does have issues with sleep or drowsiness, it's not always, uh, we want to reassure people, it's not always that you have a sleep disorder. Maybe it's your lifestyle. As you say, you've stayed up several nights in a row watching TV or or whatever keeps people from getting into bed. Um, so that's why you would say, keep to a sleep schedule, get a routine, uh, all the things you might read about, keep your room cool, get out there and exercise a little bit. Other things that you would put in there that would help people. Let's start with fine tuning your schedule and see if that helps you before we concern ourselves with the sleep study. Is that a yeah, I, I do think that's correct. I mean, it, it is absolutely valuable to go to bed at the same time and get up at the same time. But as I said in the beginning, I think many, most of us are sleep deprived because we're not getting enough sleep. So you can do, if you can alter your schedule and increase, even if it's 15 or 20 minutes or half an hour in the morning, getting up a little later and getting ready a little mm -hmm. earlier, a little quicker so that you have more sleep, that actually adds up. So if you're half you add a half an hour of sleep every day, you're looking at a, a big jump in your total sleep time for the week. So it totally helps to go to bed at the same time, getting enough sleep. As you said, cold, cool, dark rooms are really helpful. Uh, we're going to talk about it, but alcohol is really bad for sleep because of sleep fragmentation. And then you don't want to be really, you want to use the bed for sleep and you don't want to be working in bed or looking yes. at your phone in the bed. There's issues with blue light and different things that can affect you. So you, you don't want to do that while you're in bed. And many patients use the, use the TV to help them to fall asleep. And that's probably okay, but you need that TV to shut off. So you don't want the sound to be interrupting your sleep all night or the light from the TV to interrupt your sleep. So if you're going to use sleep because it calms you down, makes it easier for you to fall asleep, you need to put it on a timer and make sure that shuts off. Um, relatively quickly so it doesn't actually disturb your sleep. Good point. Because if you're watching a show, we know that when commercials come, they're a little bit louder to get your attention and you might doze off and then you hear a loud noise. Very good point. And, and put your cell phone down. You don't need to be checking emails. They'll be there in the morning. So you bring up another great point, Rich. What are the things you tell patients to avoid right off the top? Right. So alcohol is the first one. Alcohol puts everyone to sleep, but then it fragments your sleep. So it's actually a really bad concept. Um, exercise too close to sleep time is a bad idea. So if you're going to bed at 11 o'clock, you don't want to go do as an exercise bike at 10 o'clock. That's not going to be a good idea. Again, getting up same time, going to bed the same time, get your body into the right cycle. Uh, a miss, <laughs> Lots of people use the snooze alarm on their alarm clock, right? So let's say you're- Me. Yeah, mm -hmm. everybody, right? Let's say you're gonna get up at 6.30 and you set the alarm for six o'clock and now you get off and you can push the snooze alarm three or four times and you're okay, you're gonna get up at 6.30. That's actually counterproductive because you just fragment your sleep. And as I discussed, you may be knocking yourself out of the last REM episode you're gonna have that night. So it's much better to set your alarm for the last possible moment, only one time, and then when that alarm goes off, you get up. That's a much better strategy in terms of uh, making sure that you actually get as much sleep as possible. No, you're right, because I know myself, I'll set it for maybe five minutes, I'll set my phone for 6.05, 6.09, and 6.13. 
And I, when it goes off the first time, I think, ha, ha, I'm going back to sleep. And I, I have gone back into REM. And then I'm like, what are you, I'm trying to tell you, I have another eight minutes. Why are you waking me up again? So uh, I have felt exactly what you described. So you want to avoid caffeine after lunchtime or not too late in the afternoon. And cigarettes, people don't, don't uh, account for the effect of nicotine. I would think that that makes your sleep less efficient too. Yes, you don't want to smoke at all, but if you do, not in your bedtime. Yeah, smoking is bad in general, but yes. definitely not near bedtime um, for lots of reasons. And then you're correct about caffeine. Caffeine is a pretty long half-life of about 12 hours. Hmm. So coffee is fine in the morning. Maybe coffee's okay before lunch. You really don't want to drink coffee or have any caffeinated beverage after about noontime. And there's all these energy, energy drinks out there that have a lot of caffeine yes. in them. And again, uh, probably don't want to go anywhere near those. Um anytime after lunch. So people reach for over-the-counter aids, maybe Benadryl, melatonin. What say you about those? Yeah, we don't. Melatonin's probably okay. It's not great data that show that it, it's um, helps sleep a lot, but it, it does, it's not bad and it's a naturally occurring hormone. So it's relatively natural from that standpoint. And we don't think it has a lot of side effects. Mm -hmm. Over-the-counter Benadryl, which is almost in everything, if you get up, up an Excedrin, Excedrin or Tylenol PM, any of the PMs, that's a bad choice. Benadryl has a really long half-life. It has anticholinergic effects that so can make it more difficult to urinate. But it's not, there's very little data to suggest it actually works, and it will stay in your system a long time. If you're going to use a sleeping something to help you sleep. You, you want it to end by the time you get up in the morning. You don't want it to last three, four more hours longer. So I don't, we, we discourage any of the PMs, any Benadryl, and then melatonin is probably fine. We just don't really know what the right mm -hmm. dosage is. And for those who have watched the movie, The Great Santini, he was a former Marine and to get his family in the car at three o'clock so they could drive through the night to beat traffic we don't want people to drive through the night either at the end of a day or to start their day early. That's probably not a great idea either, correct? Correct. In fact, no one should ever drive through the middle of the night. You'll start having uh, micro sleeps as you're driving. And obviously yes. you can fall asleep and have a fall asleep accident, which are more dangerous than accidents where you don't fall asleep because you're usually going faster. Um, but no, it is not a good idea to ever drive through the night to get somewhere. Let's take a little nap and we'll be back with Dr. Rich Schwab from Penn Sleep Center. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com.
When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert, caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Welcome back to your radio doctor with our guest, Dr. Richard Schwab, Chief of the Division of Sleep Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Rich, I know I'm asking the right person because you perform research that focuses on the mechanics, uh, the, the structures in the upper airway that lead to sleep apnea. And let's talk about sleep apnea because that's a term I think our listeners are familiar with. And we know that apnea means you stop breathing. And that's not good for a lot of reasons, but what causes snoring? And is all snoring sleep apnea? Is all sleep apnea represented with snoring? Let's talk about those terms if we could. Sure. So sleep apnea and snoring, there's something wrong with your upper airway. Typically, the structures are too big or your jaw's too small, but typically it's more related to obesity. And snoring is usually vibration of the uvula. That's a little thing that hangs down to the back of your throat. And that vibrates and that causes the snoring. Now, sometimes you can have base of the tongue, which is further down. That can also cause snoring. It's a little different sound. Not everyone who snores has sleep apnea, but pretty much everyone who has sleep apnea snores. But snoring Mm -hmm. means that your airway is crowded. Obviously, you don't snore when you're awake. So you're awake. Mm -hmm. You're okay. You lose muscle tone when you go off to sleep getting into deeper sleep stages of sleep like delta sleep that we talked about or REM sleep that will make sleep apnea typically worse because you lose more muscle tone. So you start off if your airway is narrow when you start off. And again, that's usually related to obesity or again, having what we call retronathia, small jaw or a narrow hard palate. So you start off with a small airway, but you're fine when you're awake. Now you go off to sleep, you lose muscle tone and those structures move. They move sort of backwards in the pharynx or they can come in laterally to the lateral walls and then you start having snoring or you may start having apnea which is complete airway closure or something we call hypopnea which is partial airway closure and that's where you start getting into sleep apnea so if our listeners if we paint a picture for them you see a stage and you want the curtains to completely open so you can see all the actors on the stage and if any of the soft tissues that sort of frame the opening to our airway become lax with age, or as you say, obesity adds uh, fullness to the neck, and that opening isn't there, those curtains are going to flap in the breeze and make the snoring sound or the, the punching bag, we always call it, like in the Popeye cartoons, or Tarzan when he says, oh, that punching bag is what's vibrating, is what you're saying, the uvula. So it makes sense that that's the noise we're hearing as the air is struggling to go in and out. But not all snoring leads to sleep apnea, which means you stop breathing. And what results from that? Well, if oxygen's not going in, your blood level of oxygen can drop, even if it's temporary. And then that oxygen that we need to go to the brain and the heart and all those fun organs, the the, the level is lower. So it makes sense that it bumps the risk for stroke and heart attack and all those unwanted conditions. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So sleep apnea does a couple things. First of all, it causes sleep fragmentation because your 
your body doesn't like that oxygen to drop. So it wakes you up. So it fragments your sleep. So you start, you wake up, you may not wake up to being awake, but you wake up all night long. And, and so you get, you don't get into deeper stages of sleep. So your sleep's fragmented. So you have daytime sleepiness. And then you have all the cardiovascular problems that you just talked about, high blood pressure, heart attack, stroke, atrial fibrillation. And some of that's related to the change because your body again doesn't like your airway to be closed so there's an a, there's basically an adrenaline surge so you get changes in your blood pressure and then your oxygen's dropping so if your oxygen drops and you have vessels to your heart or to your brain that aren't perfectly normal and that oxygen drop and that can lead to a stroke or again to a heart attack. So there's all these cardiovascular risks and there's sleepiness risks. So treating sleep apnea makes a huge difference. I tell patients they often, if they, once they get put on continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP or even another treatment for sleep apnea, because there's lots of choices, uh, you can feel like you had a brain transplant. All of a sudden, you're not sleepy anymore. You're not falling asleep driving. You don't have to read a paragraph four times. You don't, you don't you're able to go to a movie and not fall asleep. And then it helps your blood pressure. If you have hypertension, it can help lower your blood pressure and help prevent heart attacks or strokes or more episodes of atrial fibrillation. So treatment is a huge benefit for patients. And, and they, they it's oftentimes miraculous how much better they feel. Mm -hmm. And we talk about a risk factor of obesity or uh, with age, the, the soft tissue uh framework, uh, maybe gets a little tired, but I'm sure there are other risk factors like certain medicines that that's why it's so important. Even over the counter preps, you want to make sure you tell your doctor your complete list every time. And, and you mentioned that feeling when your oxygen drops, even if you're asleep, maybe it will lead to nightmares. Maybe it will, um, when, when your oxygen level drops, your body says, whoa. And you go into, we talk about this on the show a lot, the fight or flight reaction, as you say, your adrenaline goes up. And your body's not going to be at rest if you're in that fight or flight means you hear footsteps in a dark alleyway and you run. Your adrenaline's up to protect you, but in the process, it makes your heart beat faster, your pressure goes up. So for all those reasons, tell us about your research, if you would. This is fascinating to me. Yeah. So we've done a lot of work on trying to understand the pathogenesis of sleep apnea, the relationship of obesity to sleep apnea. Why? If you looked at the first 10 risk factors for sleep apnea from an anatomic standpoint, all 10 of them would be obesity. And then, then the next one would be, so again, a small jaw that's, that's there. But so the question is, why does obesity cause sleep apnea? And we, we never really understood it. Um, but then we published a paper maybe 10 years ago now looking at tongue fat. And you know, if you think about it, why is there fat in the tongue? We eat, we breathe. We talk, right? There shouldn't be any fat in the tongue, but it turns out mm. there is a lot of fat in the tongue. And we did an initial study where we looked at obese patients with sleep apnea to controls, and we found that there was about a 5cc difference in tongue fat in the apnics compared to the controls. And then we did a study on weight loss and asked the question, well, why do people get better? So weight loss absolutely helps sleep apnea. And so the question is, why do they get better? And the study that was published in 2020 showed that the major factor mediating the improvement in apnea with weight loss was reductions in tongue fat. So if you, wow. so if you can reduce tongue fat, patients will get better. It's not the whole story because no, I mean, but... there's fat in the soft palate and there's also fat in the tongue and then there's lateral walls and there's some, some people have big tonsils. But absolutely one of the factors that relates to sleep apnea is tongue fat. And if you 
can get improve it, that's a good thing. We don't really understand tongue fat. Like we don't know if you are on a high fat diet, do you get more tongue fat? Um, and not everybody who is obese actually has a lot of tongue fat. We can even see it in more in, in patients who aren't overweight, but there is a direct correlation to obesity. So the heavier you are, the more likely you're gonna have more tongue fat, the more likely you're gonna have sleep apnea as well. And you're understanding this better because you're working with the departments of radiology um, and biomechanical and computer engineering. What are the studies that the radiologists offer that help you? How do you study that area? So we d typically do MRIs. Mm -hmm. um, and so those studies are done sometimes with just by just just looking at this your breathing you know over four or five minutes in an MRI scanner all different types of scans we can look for specific for fat like I said you look at dynamic changes how quickly what happens when you're breathing or just static changes and we look at all the different anatomy whether it's your tongue the soft palate the tonsils, the lateral walls. Um, and then we'll do studies with devices in so we've done studies with, you know, putting an oral appliance in the mouth or using mm. CPAP or patients undergoing surgery to remove something. And how do they work before and after surgery? And again, we did the weight loss paper where we showed what happens with weight loss. And more recently, we've done some studies on hypoglossal nerve stimulation, which is one of the newer treatments for sleep apnea. Called, it's called Inspire. Um, and that actually works pretty well in, a, in addition. So for our listeners, the hypoglossal nerve is the nerve that uh, stimulates tongue motion. And if you're able, I guess, to tell the tongue to flatten and let the air in, is that pretty much how Inspire works? So Inspire, it, it, it's a surgical procedure. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a pacemaker for your tongue. It actually pushes your tongue forward towards your lips. Oh, that's so it right. moves it from the back of the pharynx to the front of the pharynx. Um, it's not for everybody. It doesn't work in everyone, but it works better than conventional surgeries. Conventional ablative surgeries, meaning taking something away, mm -hmm. uh, work about 50% of the time. Inspire works about 75% of the time. And what we really like about it, it's reversible. So let's say you hate it or it's not working. You can take it out. You won't you have some scars, but your hypoglossal nerve, which is the nerve that stimulates your tongue, will still be there. Most surgery, if you take out your gallbladder, you take something else out, you can't put it back. Right. The one of the really neat parts about Inspire is you can actually take it out, and it's sort of reversible. Mm -hmm. Any other news in therapy? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> there's a huge revolution just starting with these GLP-1 weight loss medications, Ozempic, Mojero, there's a whole, there's a lot of them. And they're just, they're, they don't have indications yet for sleep apnea. I think that's coming, uh, but they have indications for obesity. And I think it's going to change how we manage sleep apnea patients. 80% of patients with sleep apnea are, are heavy. 20% aren't, and those are typically patients who, again, have a small jaw or a narrowed hard palate or big tonsils. But for the most part, 80% of patients are heavy, and we're going to start putting them on these GLP-1s, and they're going to lose weight, and their apnea is going to get better. So I think it's going to revolutionize how we treat patients with sleep apnea, and I think it's going to be really good. And it's really interesting to hear that the tongue fat is such a, a big cont uh, contributor to this, because I always envisioned that it was weight that's carried in the neck, but that's not the case. It's, it's all pretty much internal in the hypopharynx or the back of your throats for people to understand that. Yes, it is true. I mean, people who are, you do neck size or enlarged, enlargement of your neck is a risk factor for sleep apnea. So in a, in a, in a, man greater than 17 inches and a woman greater than 16 inches are risk factors for sleep apnea. But 
it's probably a secondary phenomenon to obesity. The problem yeah. is more in the pharynx behind the tongue. Yes. Where the soft palate is or the base of the tongue. Fat there, fat deposition there is a real problem. And if you start off with mm -hmm. a small jaw, you know, and your, your chin's back, you have a small jaw, then you don't need to gain as much weight to have more severe apnea. So the combination of a small jaw and a lot of weight gain, that's a recipe for disaster for sleep apnea. Now, this might seem like a silly question, but I'm watching you say uh, micronathia or a small jaw. What about somebody who has an underbite and their jaw is yep. protruding? Are they less at risk? Right. So if you, I think it's an overbite, but, or it's not even so much, it's, if your jaw is protruding, what we call pronathia, um, mm -hmm. that, that's, that will help protect you. So if you're pronathic, yeah, that will, so if you actually have your, so there's adolescents will have their jaw pushed back because they don't like the way they look or the, or vice versa, have their jaw moved out because uh -huh. they don't like the way they look. Um, right. so if you're retronathic, which means your jaw's back, that puts you at risk for apnea. If you're pronathic right. and you have a jaw that's out further, that's going to actually protect you a little bit. So we have about 30 seconds and I think we've sort of covered this. When does a person know that they should see a sleep medicine specialist? Because maybe their primary care doc is trying to um, walk them through. Not everybody lives near the luxury of Penn and uh, you know Jefferson and all the centers that have sleep medicine um, advisors. When, so when we can, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We can see people via telemedicine, so you can rule them to see anybody. But the two things I would focus on is if you snore and you're sleepy, if you have and, and if you're heavy, um, if you have two of those three things, you should get evaluated yeah. for a sleep study. At least check into it because if you're if you don't have sleep apnea, then you can celebrate. Correct. Let's take a little break and we'll be back with Dr. Rich Schwab. And now for your real champion. I call this segment Love, Dedication, and Camaraderie on September 11. This week marked the 22-year anniversary of September 11, the deadliest terror attack on our soil in U.S. history. We mourn the loss of 2,977 people killed in the collapsing buildings and surrounding streets, as well as the first responders who gave up their lives on that fateful day and in the ensuing months and years because of the injuries and illnesses they sustained as a result of their brave efforts. There were so many heartfelt tributes on September 11 this year to remember those who were taken from us, but one in particular struck me as especially meaningful. An article in irisstar.com, a digital publication that was launched in February of this year. It keeps readers up to date with the latest Irish and American news. The publisher is Reach PLC, one of Britain's largest newspaper, magazine, and digital publishers. The article that appeared on September 11 was written by Laura Granger. She explains that many of the first responders from New York police and fire departments had Irish heritage. And of the nearly 3,000 people who died that day, about 1,000 had connections to Ireland. The writer then shares a story she found in the Irish Times from 2001. At that time, Taisha, which means minister, Taisha Brian Cowan, who was Ireland's Minister for Foreign Affairs, visited Ground Zero just after the attacks. He contacted the governor of New York at the time, George Pataki, and explained that parents of a missing firefighter asked if a clatter ring had been found in the rubble, hoping the ring might identify their son. For our listeners, a clatter ring is an Irish wedding band. 
the chief of the New York Police Department gave his response, which was, Minister, we have found 200 clatter rings. Writer Laura Granger then finds a beautiful symbolism in the story, and I quote her explanation. The clatter ring dates back to about 1700, when it was designed by an Irish goldsmith named Richard Joyce. Its design of two hands clutching a crowned heart symbolizes love, loyalty, and friendship. The rings are popular among the Irish and the diaspora members around the world who wish to carry a piece of their heritage with them. Pataki, whose own maternal grandmother was Irish, said the discovery of the rings at Ground Zero highlighted the loss suffered here and in Ireland. When I read the article, I was especially moved. I pictured the devastated parents hoping against all odds they might find their son or at least a trace of him. The discovery of the rings emphasized the collective pain of parents, spouses, children, knowing that was all that remained of their loved ones. I'm very proud of my Irish heritage. And for our 25th wedding anniversary, my husband and I renewed our marriage vows with a priest at a special mass with our family. As a way to reaffirm our love and commitment, I surprised him with matching clatter rings, recognized as Irish wedding bands. Again, the ring symbolizes love, loyalty, and friendship. Writer Lauren Granger praises the bravery and resilience of people on the ground that day as she brings her article to a close with a stunning parallel. And I quote, The sentiments behind those rings were embodied by those involved in rescue and recovery operations. At a time of panic, grief, and destruction, first responders and the wider New York community were united by love, dedication, and camaraderie. We salute you, first responders, and all who risked their lives on that fateful day, and the author, Lauren Granger, who wrote this thoughtful and eloquent article. You're well champions. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. And we're here on Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Rich Schwab from the Sleep Medicine Center at University of Pennsylvania Health System. Rich, we talked in detail about sleep apnea, and I think a lot of people have a, a general idea what that entails. Let's talk about some of the other sleep disorders that are also pretty common, but it would be helpful for people to hear more about, say, insomnia. Let's start with that. Yeah, so insomnia is very common. Maybe 35% of the population in any given year will have trouble difficulty falling asleep. It's more of a symptom. It's not so much a disorder, um, mm -hmm. but it's really common. There's lots of risk factors for it, both patients who have psychiatric disease, but 
menopause is a risk factor, pretty much any chronic disorder, whether you have mm. lung disease, gastrointestinal disease, chronic pain, all these different things will potentially cause insomnia. And then there's sort of just people who are prone to insomnia and their parents had insomnia or their mother or their father had insomnia. Um, there's not great medical treatments for insomnia. The most There's lots of different over-the-counter, there's over-the-counter medicines that don't work very well, and there's lots of different hypnotics that you can get that can be prescribed, but they were, they're all designed for short-term use, six weeks maximum. And, and what I found is that many patients who get put on a sleeping pill stay on them forever, and they don't come off. And there's some real risks with mm. sleeping pills. They can There's sure. fall risk where you fall in the middle of the night and you break your hip. It's a huge problem or memory problems or just sleepiness when you wake up in the morning. So we don't really like hypnotics mm. very much. What we do for insomnia is typically something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a, a number of different factors. It's counseling, but they teach you how to what to do if you can't fall asleep, get out of bed into a dark room, to turn the clock the other way, don't ever look at the clock, sort of to not worry about if you don't sleep so much, and then all kinds of sleep hygiene stuff and difference, you know, making the, cool, the room dark and cool and making sure your kids aren't coming into bed and the dogs or cats aren't bothering you. But right. what they do more right. than anything else is they do a little bit of sleep deprivation where they reduce your sleep to make it more efficient and then gradually increase it. So our primary treatment for insomnia mm -hmm. is cognitive behavioral therapy, and it works pretty well, and it's perfectly safe, unlike most sleeping mm -hmm. pills that aren't so safe. And the one thing that I would say about insomnia, which, and it, again, lots of people have it, I, I do think if you start to exercise, exercise is really good because a lot of times people are anxious for and they're having trouble sleeping, but the exercise will make you more sleepy anyway. So if you can, and it's more cardiovascular exercise, not so much weightlifting. Um, but if you can exercise on a daily basis, that usually helps insomnia. Sure. And, you know, I see with my, I have, um, I'm a grandmother. Uh, they call me granny. And my grandchildren love to stay overnight because I'll often read to them or put them to bed. And uh, I know you only take care of adults, but, but with the children, if I run them around the yard or on the beach or something, bedtime's a lot easier. Although my two-year-old grandson says, one sheep, two sheep. And then, all right, there's a, this is a quiz question for you, Dr. Schwab. With whom do you connect this sound? Me, 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 me. <laughs> I'm not going to know. <laughs> Mo, Carly, or Larry, oh, the three students. Yes, now, yeah, so that is a, that's a given when you stay at Granny's. We are all doing that in unison until somebody passes out, usually my, myself first. So let's talk a little bit about narcolepsy because... I think people have general ideas of these different conditions, but sometimes it's not about the number of hours of sleep that a person gets, but how efficient it is or how refreshed they feel when they wake up. Yes. Is that a pretty good way it to is, say it? Although nar narcolepsy is challenging. Um, typically it's in younger people, sort of 18 to 24 and whether boy, boy, girl, men, women, they're really sleepy. So many of these patients will fall asleep in your office or, and they stop driving because they're, they're too sleepy. And they're, they, they're very different than their friends. So their friends go to a movie and they can stay awake and they're always falling asleep in a movie or they're always falling asleep in conversation or at times in social gatherings. So they act 
they're a little different. And then they catch some really unusual symptoms. One is something called sleep paralysis, which is where you wake up and you can't move. That can be a normal phenomenon, uh, but in narcolepsy, it happens a lot. Or you can have these hallucinations right as you're going off to sleep or when you're waking up. And some of that's related to REM sleep and going right into REM sleep. And then you can have a really unusual condition called cataplexy, where you get told mm. a funny joke or you get angry or excited and you lose muscle tone, you can almost pass out or you get blurred vision or slurred speech or knee buckling. So narcolepsy, um, not as that common, it's about one out of 2000 people, but it will happen to younger people. And there's really good treatments for it in terms of both the cataplexy and the daytime sleepiness. So I think if, you, if you're like that, or you know someone in your family who's very sleepy, often they're not heavy, um, then get them evaluated for narcolepsy because there's very good treatments for it. And so those treatments might still include the behavioral therapy such as, um, or, or mostly medications or a combo? No. Yeah. Yeah. It's mostly medications in this case. There's uh, a lot of medicines for daytime sleepiness and medications for cataplexy, not so much cognitive behavioral therapy, but the medicines make a huge difference in their lives. They'll take them, their wakefulness promoting agents, um, typically, and they, they are able to stay awake and they can function pretty mm -hmm. normally. What about, uh, we hear about restless legs. I didn't realize that that's a sleep disorder, restless leg syndrome. Yeah, it's pretty common. And it's, there's a sort of combination of restless leg syndrome, what we call periodic limb movements. Restless leg syndrome is this unusual sort of uncomfortable sensation in your legs, uh, where kind of like you, you could think about ants and crawling on your legs, where you mm. have to move. And if you move, it gets better. But if you rest, it gets worse. And so the, these patients who have bad restless leg syndrome walk three or four hours at night because they can't fall asleep because once they lay down or they try to rest, their legs start to ache and have this unusual sensation. Um, and so it can be, it usually causes insomnia. And then periodic limb movements, these are bed partner complaints where whether it's the husband or the wife or your bed partner will get kicked by the other bed partner and <laughs> that will disturb the bed partner's sleep and also causes sleep fragmentation. So the periodic limb movements can cause you to be sleepy during when you wake up in the morning. But there's a big overlap between our restless leg syndrome or RLS and periodic limb movements. So if you have one, you often have another. There's pretty good, again, pretty good treatments for RLS and periodic limb movements. So if you have those conditions, go talk, go see a sleep physician. They will be able to give you medications that will treat it pretty well. Mm -hmm. And they're pretty benign, no great side effects. And it sounds like those treatments have been around for quite a while, yes? Yeah, they've been around for a long time. I mean, there's side effects with every medicine, but typically right. these are lower. you're using lower doses than you get into side effects from. And there's a lot of choices for these different medications. So usually you can control it pretty mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. But it, what comes to mind is you can get melatonin over to the counter, correct? You can get melatonin over, over the counter. That won't help you for restless leg syndrome. Uh, no, but I mean, in general, because I worry about people who are on cardiac drugs, some cardiac drugs, isn't there a contraindication with melatonin? Please, listeners, I, I no matter what the topic, please don't get anything over the counter other than occasional Tylenol. Even that, you should ask your doctor because that could bother people that have liver problems. But really talk to your doctor, especially if you're on cardiac drugs before you take anything over the counter to help you sleep. Yes. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think if you're on any over-the-counter medication, you use it consistently, you should let your doctor know what you're on uh, because even you're taking Advil and now you're going in for surgery and now you might Mm -hmm. bleed or you're going in for some kind of a biopsy where they're doing something. So it always is a good idea uh, to let your doctor know what you're taking over the counter. Mm -hmm. And from a you know, a sleeping pill standpoint, as I discussed, Benadryl is not a great choice. Melatonin is pretty safe. Uh, it doesn't usually get you in too much trouble. We mm-hmm. just don't know what the right dosage is. Yeah. Shift work. How does that play into all of this? Because obviously we're not meant to be awake from, you know, we're supposed to hibernate from maybe 11 to seven or something like that. How do people's bodies, especially if they're on different shifts, it's one thing if somebody's on permanent night shift and maybe they can adjust, but the, the triple, you know, 11 to seven or whatever it is, and then shift to day work and then midday. How do people's bodies tolerate that? They don't very well. I mean, exactly. that's a really difficult situation. If you're going to be on shift work, it's much better to be on it for a month. For instance, you're working 11 to seven for a month, and then you mm-hmm. go on to another shift. Um, but shift work is difficult. Probably 20% of the population are shift workers. And three to four percent three or 4% of that group has actually shift work disorder. And that's a condition where you can't, you're having a terrible time staying awake during your shift. You may be falling asleep when you're driving home and then you have difficulty sleeping during the daytime, which isn't totally surprising, right? I mean, you know, if you, if you end up going to bed at 9 a.m. and sleeping till mm-hmm. four in the afternoon, people are going to knock at your door. The phone's going to ring, the lights on, there's, you know, people act not surprisingly, they will do things that, they don't expect you to be sleeping or they'll call on the phone or whatever. So there it's, you don't get as much sleep as you should. In fact, I think most sleep work sleep people who are on shift work get about one hour less sleep than somebody who's not on shift work. Very difficult to treat. Um, if you do have shift work disorder though, there's some of the same medicines we use for narcolepsy can be used, especially if you're falling asleep, driving home, that's dangerous. You don't want to do that. Um, and so there are some solutions, but it, it's difficult because if you take something, a wakefulness permanent agent right before you leave work, you get your home, now it may be more difficult to fall asleep because you now have that in your in your system. So it is challenging. Yeah. And I, I guess especially people who work in a situation like uh, first responders or people that work in a hospital setting, uh, or if you're on call, you get a call at 2 a.m., it might be hard to go back to sleep at three, but you still have to get up at six and all those issues. I wonder if people do uh, try a therapy. Do you suggest that they keep a sleep diary and say, just for a couple of weeks, you think that you're getting you know, a certain amount of sleep. Why don't you try to keep a, a list, even for a week or so, what time did I go to bed? Did I wake up during the night? How many times um, did I take a, a sleep aid? Does that seem to help or is that redundant? Uh, it can help. Um, it's hard though. A lot of times you don't know when you fall asleep, how right. long you stayed asleep, how many times you got up. I mean, it is super helpful in terms of a sleep aid. How many times did you take that? What time did you at least get into bed? What time did you get out of bed? I mean, there, there are a lot of advantages. There's really no downside to keeping track of that, uh, but it's not like doing a sleep study. I mean, you have Fitbits and other devices now that can kind of measure sleep. Oh, I forgot not, about that. Yeah. Not perfect. Um, uh, especially in someone with a disorder, maybe in someone who doesn't have a sleep disorder, you can get away with some of that 
that it's mostly based on movement and sort of other algorithms for that. It's not perfect, uh, but it, having data is a good thing. And and you do have wearables now. I mean, you've got smart watches that can measure oxygen drops to pick up sleep apnea. And so I do think you're going to see more diseases that are at least screened with wearables yes. or some type of device, whether it's a smart bed or a smart pillow or a smart watch or a smart phone. So I do think that's coming. And in fact, I think it's already here. I guess it's kind of like saying, do you snore when you're asleep? Well, no, I don't know. I'm asleep. But I will say, right. as I said earlier, I'm pretty sure my father used to say he could see the Z's coming out, of, uh, out from under the door in my room because he could hear me snoring. <laughs> Stay with us during the break and we'll be back with more on sleep medicine. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Hi, my name is Bobby Bunyan, CEO of Recovery Centers of America at Bracebridge Hall, and today I'm your addiction expert from RCA. Today I'm going to talk about what enabling an addiction looks like. Enabling an addiction refers to behaviors or actions that unintentionally support or even perpetrate an individual substance abuse or addictive behavior. Enabling can take many forms, such as providing financial support, making excuses for the person's behavior, bailing them out of trouble, or minimizing the severity of their addiction. Enabling behaviors are often well-intentioned and come from a place of love or concern for the individual struggling with addiction. However, enabling can ultimately do more harm than good, as it allows the person to continue their addictive behavior without facing the full consequences of their actions. If you suspect that you may be enabling someone's addiction, it's important to seek help and support for both yourself and the person struggling with addiction. If you or a loved one needs help with alcohol or drugs, reach out to Recovery Centers of America at 833-969-0268 or visit rcaradiodoctor.com. That's R-C-A-R-A-D-I-O-D-R.com. We answer the phone and admit patients 24-7. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. And welcome back to our final segment of Your Radio Doctor, we call this wrap-up session your weekly prescription. A very special thank you to Dr. Richard Schwab from Penn's Sleep Medicine Center. Rich, we've learned a lot about sleep disorders. Let's take a minute to talk about sleepwalking and REM sleep disorder. Yeah, so sleepwalking is typically in younger people and usually you grow out of it, but you can hurt yourself. So a sleepwalker, can walk out of the room and open up a, a window and jump out of a window and actually start a car. They could never mm. do a combination lock. So you can't do really fine movements, but you oh. can do gross movements. So one of the things, if you are a sleepwalker, typically, like I said, you grow out of it. But if you don't, you want to have a door alarm and you want to have locks on the window so you can't open up the window. So a lot of sleepwalking is, and obviously like wielding weapons or doing those kind of things, you have to keep them locked up. So oh, the thing about sleepwalking is you need to protect the environment. Mm -hmm. um, and if you do that, then the person's going to be fine. Uh, now, REM behavior disorders a little bit less common. That's typically in elder, elderly men. And this is where you act out your dreams, right? So most of us, you have a dream, you're not acting out, right? But these people act out the dreams and it's often an aggressive dream. So I had 
I had one patient who had this, I've had lots of patients who had this, but one guy, he went to bed with boxing gloves on for 15 years because he would punch <gasps> his wife. And so rather than punching his wife with his fist, he used a boxing glove. But it's typically in a, a, in a some type of dream where you, you think you're being attacked and so you fight back. So you'll put your hand through the backboard of a bed or you'll just knock over the lamp. So that's an unusual disorder. It wow. can also be associated with some neurologic conditions. So you have to be evaluated for that. But there, is, there are treatments for both. Both the sleepwalking, you need to protect the room and the REM behavior disorder, you, you need to at least see typically a sleep doctor and they'll send you, send you on the right way for it to go. Uh, or unless for somebody, instead of the boxy gloves, get a dog to sleep between the husband and the wife and then everybody curls up and, uh, oh, but you could hurt the dog too. I guess that's not a good idea. Yeah, I think the uh, dog might not like you punching him or her. Oh, oh my gosh. So let's review some of the talking points from the show because we've learned so much from listening to you. Yeah, so a couple of major points. If, you're, if you snore and you're sleepy and especially if you're overweight, you should get evaluated for sleep apnea and go see your sleep doctor. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that don't at least I hopefully everyone understands don't use your snooze alarm you know if you're <laughs> set, set your alarm for the last possible moment um, and then turn it off and get out of bed but you want to try to increase your sleep time as much as you can we're all sleep deprived mm -hmm. don't use benadryl or pm over-the-counter type medications they are a bad choice if you're having trouble falling asleep don't use alcohol as a crutch to fall asleep it will just disturb your sleep we're all used to um having how you feel in the morning when you're drunk part of that when you've had too much to drink part of that is related to the sleep fragmentation that occurs related to the alcohol not necessarily the alcohol itself um so those mm -hmm. are all some major messages in terms of understanding uh sleep conditions but if you should talk to your doctor don't be afraid to talk to your doctor about your sleep especially if you're sleepy during the daytime you're falling asleep at red lights or you're falling asleep uh, at movies or watching tv or even driving uh and one of the things we didn't talk about, if you are sleepy driving, things like opening the window, turning on the radio, none of that works. If you're sleepy, no. you need to engage your brain in some way. So if you have a Bluetooth connection and you talk to somebody and you're actually talking, that's helpful. Or pull over to a safe area. Drinking caffeine absolutely helps there. So that if you're if you're falling asleep driving, just be if you're starting to, you know, lane shift or different things, and you know, you need to need to do something to actively prevent that. Again, pull over. Um, don't drive. Don't continue driving. And we don't want you to drive through the night, and we don't want you to eat heavy meals uh, too late because uh, I'm sure if you reflux, that's going to trigger uh, your airway as well to make you gasp and and be apneic. Absolutely. I mean, reflux makes sleep apnea worse and sleep apnea makes reflux worse. So you get both sides of that and yes. eating a heavy, heavy meal will get you sleepy and don't, don't eat late, eat earlier if you can. And then again, if you're going to exercise, which is a great idea, uh, don't exercise near bedtime. And put your cell phone to sleep before you put yourself to sleep, put it up on the bureau and say, good night, cell phone. Correct. Dr. Rich Schwab, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I'm sure we're going to play this show more than once because of so many wonderful tips. If somebody wanted to see you as a patient, what number would they call or come to the sleep center? Yeah, you could call 215-662-7772. That's a, you'll get a voice change, but you'll get someone and be happy to see anybody with a, uh, mostly sleep apnea, but we have 
doctors who can see pretty much every sleep condition. That's 215-662-7772. Dr. Richbob, sure. thank you so much. Marianne, thank you. This is great. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Your Radio Doctor every Saturday at 5 p.m. here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Listen to this show again on the Odyssey website. That's odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y. We thank our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from Recovery Centers of America. Please follow us and like us on any of the social media platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now Threads. We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to info at yourradiodoctor.net. Tell us about a topic you'd like to learn about. Share the story of a real champion in your family or community. Info at yourradiodoctor.net. Now on a sad note, recently I spoke to a friend who I hadn't been able to reach for a while. I learned it was because her family was mourning the loss of her college-aged nephew to suicide. I don't know her well, but I could hear the sadness in her voice. I pictured the boy's parents, his brothers and sisters, even his extended family, paralyzed with grief and shocked with disbelief. It's hard to fathom the depth of their sadness, but one can only imagine the pain the young man suffered before he died. September is National Suicide Awareness Month. According to the CDC, in 2021, suicide was a leading cause of death for people ages 25 through 34 years of age. Teen depression is also a serious issue. The National Alliance on Mental Illness reports that nearly 20% of high school students report serious thoughts of suicide, and 9% report attempting suicide. Suicide often results from feeling helpless or hopeless and may seem like the only solution. Depression in teens is a serious problem, and if not addressed, can lead to problems with physical health and behavior, use of alcohol and drugs, broken relationships with family and friends, and problems at school. Warning signs are not always evident. And if you do realize that a person is struggling, you might not be sure what to do or if confronting the patient might make things worse. Well, if you or someone you know is struggling, know that you're not alone and there is help within reach. Call or text 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Website 988lifeline.org. Call or text 988 or use hashtag be there to find help from the CDC to help prevent suicide. Your intervention may help a depressed teen or someone of any age to find other options that offer treatment and safety. Next week, we welcome Dr. George Cozzarellis, Chair of Dermatology at Penn, to discuss the topic of hair loss. Tune in next Saturday. And it's football season for the Penn State Nittany Lions, so keep your radio dial on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. This week, the game was at noon, but next week, start your evening with your radio doctor at 5 p.m., and then you'll be ready for the game at 7.30. This is your radio doctor wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love, and always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com.
This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered.